Good morning. Sounds pretty loud. I want to thank you. Uh, I had not planned on doing this, and that's always dangerous, but I want to thank you for praying for Laura. She's feeling quite strong these days, and we were out gardening this past weekend, pulling weeds, and she was out working me again, like the old days, and uh, I thought to myself, I, I can't fold before she does. I can't fold. And so I just kept pulling and pulling, and finally she said, well, what's the plan for, you know, and uh, that was my cue that I could fold. Uh, but we really were marveling yesterday just thinking about how, how well she's doing, and we attribute it to your prayers, and we thank you so much. We thank you so much. So I'm also thankful for my family of faith that agrees to let me out of my cage once in a while and preach on a sensitive subject. And um, so this morning I want to preach on upholding marriage culture. In light of the recent Supreme Court ruling legalizing same-sex marriage this past June, I want to revisit the biblical view of marriage make some observations. I want to talk to you about Christian sexual ethics. And I want to exhort you to be one who determines to uphold traditional biblical marriage in our culture. When this ruling came down, I believe it was on June 26th of this year, some were elated in our society Others were profoundly grieved, and many became very confused about what to believe and how to walk out uh, contrasting beliefs. Many see this development as the battle between gay rights and religious freedom. In actuality, however, I think a better understanding is that this is an ongoing war between the sexual revolution and Christianity. There's a uh, man named David French who writes for the National Review, and he said this, the battle is not between gay rights and religious liberty, although religious liberty is certainly at stake, but between the sexual revolution and Christianity itself. This means that Christians are faced not with allegedly minor or insignificant theological changes to gain leftist acceptance, but with wholesale changes to the historic doctrines of the faith. I think that's a better understanding, a more helpful understanding of what's happening. After all, in the 1960s, we had free love, didn't we? And in the 1970s, we... Uh, have had no-fault divorce established. In the 1980s, we saw a dramatic rise in cohabitation. In the 1990s, we had the, interv- uh, the advent of Internet porn. And in 2000, the rise of the gay rights movement. And now in 2015, we have same-sex marriage legalized in America. So I want to make that point, that at first, that I think this is 
better understood as the sexual revolution marching on um, than simply a battle between gay rights and religious freedom. Second, I want to remind you that it was Christianity that elevated the status of women in the midst of a very profligate and lawless Greco-Roman culture. It was Christianity that brought a responsible ethic to the world, an ethic of sexual exclusivity and protections of women from sexual exploitation. Christianity did this by galvanizing the standard of monogamous marriage as being God's ordained plan for sexuality. I also want to remind you that historic Christianity is always, has always been an offense to the cultures in which it resides. Nevertheless, our duty remains the same, doesn't it? To pass on the faith once delivered. To be a prophetic voice, indeed, to be salt and light to in, in an increasingly decaying culture. Not losing the traits that distinguish us as Christians. I don't know if you remember, a couple of years ago, Jim Garrett preached a message on Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. And he talked about Matthew 5.13, which is, if the salt loses its saltiness, uh, how can it become salty again? And he said the whole point of this Sermon on the Mount was, don't lose your distinctiveness as Christians. The things that define you, don't lose those. Fourth, I want you to know where I'm coming from before I go into the meat of the message. I assume that you know this morning that homosexual behavior is consistently condemned in the Scriptures, just like every other sexual activity outside of biblical marriage. I'm assuming you want to live under the authority of the Scriptures. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. I'm deeply opposed, third, to same-sex marriage on scriptural grounds, on public policy grounds, and on the consequences either intended or unintended. My intention this morning is not to scapegoat same-sex marriage or couples who marry, but to lift up the beauty and glory of traditional biblical marriage and talk about Christian sexual ethics. After all, Hebrews 13.4, how many of you can tell me what that says? Anybody? Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let marriage be held in honor among all. But I will use same-sex marriage as a comparison point, and I'll be reading from the Supreme Court justice, justices who dissented on the same-sex marriage uh, law. Alito, Thomas, uh, Scalia, and Roberts. I also want you to know I don't wish to offend anyone. If you have experienced a failed marriage, I want to say to you, you are not a failure. Don't let the enemy do that number on you through this message. You are not a failure. I'm not disparaging families who are not traditional either. For example, single moms, single dads, 
grandparents, adoptive parents, foster parents, step-parents most often do a heroic job raising kids in our day. I'm not saying that a gay couple cannot raise a healthy, well-adjusted child. I'm sure that's happened, and I'm sure it's happening in some cases. I am saying that I have sinned sexually, just like most every person in this room. And so there's no room for me to think that I or we are better than anybody else or judge anybody else. All we say is that we are a forgiven people. We are a rescued people. And we are a people set apart to live for God. Can we all say thank God for the blood, the cross, the forgiveness, the grace of Jesus Christ that has forgiven us for every sin, including those that have been sexual. So that's where I'm coming from. So today, we will talk about biblical marriage and Christian sexual ethics in the light of the recent legalization of same-sex marriage. And next week, we have a very special uh, TCF panel made up of three married couples that we're going to interview about the joys, the humor, the uh, difficulties, and the glory of traditional marriage. Who are they, you're asking in your mind? You'll have to wait and see who they are. So here is my outline of the major points for today. If we want to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ when it comes to upholding marriage, number one, I think we need to know what Jesus said about marriage. We're going to take a look at that. Two, we are obligated under a biblical ethic to reject an anything-goes sexual ethic. Number three, I think we need to develop a mindset that sexual sin, all sexual sin, is an abomination to God, not just homosexuality. Fourth, I think it's wonderful if we can defend traditional marriage from a public policy standpoint, secular arguments, and be strong in that arena as well as scriptural arguments. And I think you'll find that interesting. And then lastly, we have to courageously face the future as religious freedoms and conscientious or conscience protections are threatened. So here are the words of Jesus, what he said about marriage in Matthew 19. You might remember, you might remember that the Pharisees uh, asked him about divorce because there were school, two, two schools of thought about divorce in his day. One school of thought was that um, there should not be divorce or divorce should be very limited. And the other school of thought was that if there was any indecency found, in the wife, and that was interpreted very literally, the husband could divorce her. And so they came to Jesus asking about divorce, and the scriptures say to test him, to see what he would say. And here's what he said. He answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? By the way, this is his, the start of his answer to their question 
is not to talk about divorce, but to talk about what marriage is. And this is his answer. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And you'll see there that I have that he is rehearsing some verses from Genesis, specifically Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24. So I have discerned in this answer of Jesus saying, what is marriage? Seven components of a biblical marriage. The first one is gender complementarity. In other words, he said, referencing Genesis 1.27, that God made them male and female. Here's the verse. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what I want to say here with emphasis is that it is the male female dyad that reflects the image of God. It is the male-female complementary dyad that reflects the image of God. It is also the male-female dyad that reflects the complementarity and beauty and diversity of God. In Genesis 2.28, we read that Um, The Lord said, it's not good for a man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now that phrase, helper suitable, in the Hebrew is ezer kenegdo. And it means one who stands in his face. One who stands opposite him, but is similar to him. One who is complementary and corresponds to him, but will contend with him. And isn't that how it is in marriage, right? We contend with one another. Uh, We are in each other's face, so to speak. And through that process, through that crucible, we become more like Christ. Isn't that beautiful? It's a hard school, but it's a good school. This... um, complementarity reflects the complexity of God's nature. Think about God's nature and how in his nature seemingly contradictory things are held in tension as in, a, as in a marriage. In his nature is holiness and love, tenderness and fear, mercy and judgment, togetherness and separateness. So It's the male-female dyad that reflects the image of God. It's the male-female dyad that reflects the beauty and diversity and complementarity of God. And it's the male-female dyad that reflects the reconciling power of God, of bringing two opposites together and making a glorious whole. Think about that, how God has reconciled us to himself. God has reconciled Jew and Gentile. And in marriage, male-female marriage, God reconciles two genders to each other. This is part of God's plan 
for marriage, gender complementarity. Secondly, marriage is marital and public. For this cause means for the cause of marriage, right? Jesus is beginning to explain for marriage, this is what happens. This is the purpose. You'll see here that it says man and wife, not man and woman. So for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his woman. No, cleave to his wife. The woman receives a new public status, a new honor, a new position. It is public, it is recognized, it is communal, and it is official. You know, in ancient cultures, the bride would proceed in a processional from her village to the man's village. You remember some of those stories in the Bible about the processional? Well, in a modern wedding, what happens? The bride is at the back of the church, the groom is at the front, and she processes down the aisle to him. It's called the, pro the processional. And what happens there? The father removes her hand from his arm and gives his hand to the new groom. It's, it's reflective of that ancient uh, culture. It's marital, it's public, it's a ceremony, it's official. Number three, marriage is also meant to be a preeminent re relationship. In other words, leave and cleave. Because the woman has already risked all by leaving her village, her support system, uh, the Lord speaks very forcefully to the man in Genesis 2.24. He says, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother. You would expect God to say, for this cause, a woman shall leave her father and mother and process to the man's village. But no, the scripture says, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Very strong word to the man. Just like the woman has left, you too must leave and cleave. Now in Africa, that is a, that is a dilemma because African men typically live on their family compound and the woman after marriage comes to live on the family compound and he inherits that compound when his parents die. And if he leaves the compound to live with her separately, many parents um, withdraw the family inheritance from him. So when I was in Africa preaching on marriage, they were asking me, does, does, does the couple need to leave the family compound? My answer was, whether he leaves or not is not the issue. The issue is, who has first allegiance in his heart? If it comes down to a conflict between his parents and his wife, who's he going to protect? Who's he going to choose? Uh, who is he going to align himself with? Number four, marriage is a God-ordained sexual relationship. We read uh, in verse 5 there, the two shall become one flesh. This is a reference 
to sexual relations that binds a married couple together physically and spiritually as one. Marriage is the God-ordained place for this to occur. You'll see in the next verse where I talk about marriage is a comprehensive relationship in verse 6 that the term one flesh is repeated again. Look at verse 6. Consequently, they are no longer two but one flesh. This is reflecting one flesh now in a new way, meaning all of life will be shared by the couple as a team. They are a comprehensive unit facing a comprehensive life. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Have you ever noticed that marital vows that you hear couples say are not about love? They don't pass some kind of love test at the altar, do they? What are marital vows about? They are a promise. Marital vows are a promise that I will live comprehensively with you. I will live uh, in sickness and in health, in richer and in poorer. So the vows that we take when we endeavor to be married are not about love. They're about commitment and faithfulness, fidelity, and living that comprehensive life together. Now, many, many challenges come along the way, don't they? Um, I, as as most of you know, I think, I work with um, sex addicts, trying to bring them to faithful discipleship in Jesus Christ. And one thing I've noticed about their spouses is they are amazing in the degree of pain that they have to endure, and the degree to which they cling to their marriages. The man who trained me in sexual addiction said that 75% of the spouses threaten to leave. 25% leave temporarily, but less than 5% permanently leave. Is that an amazing thing? It speaks to the comprehensiveness of the marriage relationship, I think, and the depth to which God brings two people together. Number six, it's exclusive and it's permanent. We read at the end of verse six, I'll cycle back there, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Progressives in the same-sex marriage movement are already chafing in their writings about these marital norms of exclusiveness and permanence. Instead of couples, you read about throuples, that there just as easily could be three that have a strong emotional bond to each other and want to have it dignified by marriage. Instead of monogamy, you run across the word monogamish, meaning we'll mostly be monogamous, but we don't want to limit ourselves to one person sexually. And instead of wedlock, you read about wed leases. In other words, why should it be for life? 
all other types of life, you, you sign a contract for a period of time. So why can't we have a renewable contract every five or ten years or whatever we decide? Justice uh, Chief Roberts uh, picks up on this in legal terms on page 20 of his dissent. Let me read it to you. It's striking how much of the majority's reasoning. Now, when he says majority, he means the five justices who voted in favor of same-sex marriage. So he says, uh, it's striking how much the majority's reasoning would apply with equal force to the claim of a fundamental right to plural marriage. If there is, quote, dignity in the bond between two men or women or women who seek to marry and in their autonomy to make such profound choices, end quote, why would there be any less dignity in the bond between three people who, in exercising their autonomy, seek to make the profound choice to marry? This is the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. If a same-sex couple has the constitutional right to marry because their children would otherwise, quote, suffer the stigma of knowing their families are somehow lesser, unquote, why wouldn't the same reasoning apply to a family of three or more persons raising children? If not having the opportunity to marry, quote, serves the disrespect and subordinate, unquote, gay and lesbian couples, why wouldn't the same, quote, imposition of this disability, unquote, serve to disrespect and subordinate people who find fulfillment in polyamorous relationships? Indeed, from the standpoint of history and tradition, a leap from opposite-sex marriage to same-sex marriage is much greater than one from a two-person union to plural unions, which have deep roots in some cultures around the world. If the majority is willing to take the big leap, it is hard to see how it can say no to the shorter one. Does that make sense to you? I hope so. And then finally, marriage is a sacred arrangement. In verse 6, we read what God has joined together. Let no man put asunder. In short, marriage must be done his way to be a marriage at all. This is why John Piper, for one, a very famous theologian in, up in Minneapolis, uh, wrote that there is no such thing as same-sex marriage. It simply doesn't exist. That's an interesting position, isn't it, now that it's been legalized? So you have Christian conservatives who find themselves in a position where something that doesn't exist legally exists. And we are expected to accept it, honor it, and affirm it, and put aside our public reservations or religious convictions about it. Nevertheless, I want you to be aware of what Jesus said. The biblical view is that male-female marriage was instituted by God, not man, and that Jesus affirmed this view of marriage by performing his first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. But let's move on. Secondly, 
I think we need to reject an anything-goes sexual ethic, not only for ourselves, but also in what we lend approval to. And we'll come back to that. If you have your Bibles or a Bible program on your phone, would you open to 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 2 through 8. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 2 through 8. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 2 through 8. Please pay special attention to this passage. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, and here he clarifies what he means by your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to possess his own vessel, that refers to your own body, in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles do who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother. And in our culture, we would also add, and his sister. Not that we want to add to the word of God, but that no man transgress and defend, defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is what? The avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Now pay special attention to verse 8. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. What I want you to notice here is that this passage is saying that our sexual ethics, our sexual behavior is inextricably linked to our spiritual standing. Thessalonians is a book about holiness in light of Christ's return. And verse 8 is a strong prophetic warning and command. Jim Garrett a few weeks ago said that the Word of God falls into one of three categories. Do you remember this? Facts to be believed, promises to be received, or commands to be obeyed. I would say verse 8 is a command to be obeyed. Would you agree with me? I don't think it leaves us much wiggle room. He who rejects this is not rejecting man, but rejecting God, it says. Contrast this Thessalonian passage with the book of Judges. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. How many of you remember that that's the refrain of the book of Judges? And Moses, when he's 120 years old at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, and he's he's preaching his final farewell sermons to the people of Israel in 12.8, Deuteronomy 12, verse 8, he says, you shall not do at all what you are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Moses' whole point in this message is that we have to worship God the way he requires and with his rules, amen? Amen. You're pretty quiet out there. Pretty quiet out there. You can't make up your own rules about sex 
or anything else. You know, there's a lot of pressure on us as adults, but even more pressure on young people to bracket their sexual values from the rest of their walk with God. In other words, put it in a separate box so you can enjoy living together before marriage. It, it, you know, God doesn't care about that, is what our culture is trying to teach us, correct? But obviously, he does care about that. And so I want to exhort you young people, please do not cave to that temptation someday to live with your um, intended before marriage. It's, 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 it's contrary to God's word. And you are trying to bracket your values, bracket off what is essential to him, not optional. You know, we human beings can sexualize anything, can't we? We can sexualize a shoe, a child, an airbrushed picture, a fantasy, a robot, a leg, an animal, a friendship, even ourselves. So it's no wonder that we have trouble in this area. This is a very powerful area, isn't it? We all make mistakes, and yet God's Word is calling us to that sanctified life, that holy life. Rather than these, we are to only approve what is excellent. Let's look at Philippians 1, 9 and 10, and then we will look at Romans. Philippians 1, 9 and 10 says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Jesus Christ. You know, another thing the world is trying to, our culture, the power of the age, if you will, is trying to get us to do is to confine our faith to the four walls of our heart, but not our actions. You can worship God in your church. You can worship God in your heart. But when it comes to expressing your faith in the public sphere through action or verbalizing, that's where there's increasing tension and increasing pressure. But the scriptures say we're to be careful to not only be righteous and holy ourselves, but to be careful about what we approve, what we approve of. In Romans 14.22, there's a beautiful verse. Listen to this verse. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. I don't know about you, but I've been invited to two same-sex weddings, both in my family. And uh, I would say to you that we are all going to be tested in this area. And it will raise questions in your mind and in your heart and in your soul. And the questions will be, what is marriage? That will be one question. What is a wedding ceremony? Is it something I can go to as a neutral country, a neutral observer, Or will my going violate my convictions, 
violate the sexual ethic of the gospel, violate um, my standards or the Lord's standards. Is there a difference between a belief and a conviction? In other words, a belief I could, I could uh, confine to the walls of my heart and go to that wedding, or is it a conviction where it's such a deep-rooted uh, issue that I, I, I simply cannot transgress that um, conviction? Will my presence express approval? These are some of the tough questions that we face as believers. Third, I think we have to develop a mindset that all sexual sin is an abomination to God. Leviticus 18.22 says that a man shall not lie uh, with a man as with a woman. And that's an abomination. It uses that word abomination. I wanted to find out, is there, do the scriptures lift up homosexuality as, a, as especially abominable or not? I wanted to be fair-minded about that. And I knew that that scripture was there. It's sandwiched between child sacrifice and bestiality. You can look and see what a terrible position that behavior has in the list of sexual sins in Leviticus 18. And yet, if you go on and look at uh, Leviticus 18, 26 through 30, you find that the Lord calls all the sexual sins listed there abominations. And I show you verse 30 here that says, Thus you are to keep my charge that you do not practice any the abominable customs which have been practiced before you so as not to defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord. At least four times in those verses it says any or all of the abominations. So in the Lord's mind, um, every sexual sin is an abomination to him. And uh, again, that doesn't mean that I'm clean or have been perfect. It just is what the Word of God says. You know, if you're looking for a good way, I've been searching for a good way in my own mind to say to someone who is pro-same-sex relationships, how can I as gently as possible express my conviction about biblical marriage? And uh, I don't know if you find this helpful, but I, I like this wording. I only believe in one sexualized relationship, that of a man and a wife in committed marriage. To me, that's a way to just level the playing field. I don't believe in premarital sex. I don't believe in adultery. I, 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 I don't believe in same-sex sexuality. I believe in one sexualized relationship. I don't know if that's helpful to you, but I throw it out there. And then in 1 Peter 2.9 we read, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that what? What does the second half of that verse say? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, I want you to 
also be able to defend marriage from a public policy standpoint. You guys need to stretch. <laughs> Let's just stand up for a minute and, and stretch. I told Laura, I'm so worried how long this is going to be. And she said, well, do a seventh inning stretch. So stretch, relax, and let's go back to it. Okay, traditional marriage, think about why, why do governments assign benefits, certain benefits to marriage? What do they care about intense emotional relationships between adults? What do they care um, Traditionally, marriage has been legally protected and supported by governments across time and cultures because it produces a good that no other institution can produce as well, the next generation of well-adjusted and productive citizens. Not to say that same-sex couples cannot produce well-adjusted citizens. It's just that traditional marriage is considered, has been historically considered the best way to do that. And you have thinkers from all across the world, great philosophers like Socrates, Plato, Cicero, Aristotle. You have church fathers like Augustine, Aquinas, Calvin, and Luther. You have uh, Eastern thinkers like Gandhi. You have Enlightenment thinkers like Locke and Kant. Throughout time, there's been a convergence of the best political, theological, and philosophical thinkers all trying to articulate what marriage is. So here's some definitions. Locke says it's a voluntary compact between man and woman centered on its chief end, procreation, and the nourishment and support of children. A traditional definition, right? Noah Webster, the legal union of a man and woman for life to the end of preventing the promiscuous intercourse of the sexes, promoting domestic felicity, how many of you under 30 know what felicity means? Laura and I have a lot of felicity, so you might want to go look it up. And securing the maintenance and education of children. What's that? What's that? No, no. It mean, I'll, tell, I'll spill the beans. It means happiness. Felicity means happiness. <laughs> okay. The same-sex marriage movement takes the view of John Corvino, Department of Philosophy, Wayne State. He's chair of the Department of Philosophy there in Detroit. He's uh, openly gay, has been for many years. And he says that um, marriage is the strongest emotional bond between two adults. And uh, to explain that further... Let me read uh, how Justice Alito uh, defines that, that bond or the argument uh, there. Let's see. He says, although the court expresses the point in loftier terms, its argument is that the fundamental purpose of marriage is to promote the well-being of those who choose to marry. This is the, the, the gay marriage movement uh, position as described by Judge Alito, okay? Marriage provides emotional fulfillment and the promise of support in times of need. And by benefiting persons who choose to wed, marriage indirectly benefits society 
because persons who live in stable, fulfilling, and supportive relationships make better citizens. It is for these reasons, the argument goes, that states encourage and formalize marriage, conferring special benefits and obligations. This understanding of the state's reasons for recognizing marriage enables the majority to argue that same-sex marriages serve the state's objectives in the same way as opposite-sex marriage. This understanding of marriage, which focuses almost entirely on the happiness of persons who choose to marry, is shared by many people today, but it is not the traditional one. For millennia, marriage was inextricably linked to the one thing that only an opposite-sex couple can do, procreate. So I want you to see the difference between the two definitions of marriage that were presented to the court. Is it pretty clear? You guys are quiet again. Am I going too long? No? Okay. Thanks, Deb. If some of you feel I am, you can get to Deb after the service. Say, why did you nod your head? Okay. Traditional marriage has been child-focused from a government policy standpoint. From a social science standpoint, children, the argument goes like this. Children deserve a mother and a father, and a biological mother and father are best. Not, not necessarily always required, again, to raise a healthy child, but a biological mother and father, by numerous studies, have been shown to be best for the child to flourish. Now, here's another social science argument that I really think is a very strong argument for traditional marriage. When a child is born, a mother is nearby. The question is, is there a father nearby? The answer already in our country is that is no. In 70% of Afri African American homes, 50% of Hispanic homes, and 40% of white homes. Now, from a legal standpoint, the law teaches, doesn't it? I want you to think about that. You know, no-fault divorce, when that was en enacted um, in the 70s, the divorce rate went up. Uh, so the law informs people about what is acceptable. And it has a pedagogical, a teaching mode uh, so whenever the definition of marriage is broadened, the likelihood that a father being close is diminished as fatherhood seems to be more optional. Now, this is from a man called Ryan T. Anderson who specializes in this field. He works for the Heritage Foundation. I want you to see, uh, get a glimpse of him speaking.
just a little more here. Boys who grow up without their fathers much more. 
if you like uh, the way he speaks, uh, again, his name is Ryan T. Anderson, and he's all over, the, all over YouTube, so you can search him out. Here's some interesting facts I ran across. You know, same-sex marriage is about 15 years young. The Netherlands were the first, was the first country to legalize same-sex marriage. They did so in the year 2000. Since that time, about 22 nations right now out of about 195 have legalized same-sex marriage. The Supreme Court, oh, uh, so 15 years young versus probably five to 6,000 years of monogamous marriage history depending on whether you believe the creation story or Sumerian artifacts or whatever. Um, that's if you're a young earth person. You know, if you're an old earth person, you might believe that marriage goes much further back. Here's another interesting thing. The Supreme Court is hardly representative of our culture. Look at this, nine lawyers. Uh, you may have forgotten that Supreme Court justices are lawyers. All of them graduated from Harvard or Yale. Four are from New York City, eight from East and West Coast states, no Southwesterners, no true Westerners. California doesn't count, Justice Scalia says. Not a single evangelical Christian, which is about 20 to 25% of our population. Not a single Protestant of any denomination. Did you realize that? That the Supreme Court was that unrepresentative of our culture as a whole. I, 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 I would love to read you Scalia's stuff, um, but according to Justice Roberts, another interesting fact, at the time of the Supreme Court ruling, voters and legislators in 11 states and the District of Columbia had legalized same-sex marriage. Another five states, it had been decreed by state Supreme Courts for a total of, what is that, 16. So that leaves 34 states that retained the traditional definition of marriage when the court issued the same-sex ruling. And so the justices who were in the minority said, this is outrageous. Uh, not only is this uh, right not found in the Constitution, but they said, you know, the states were working their way through this issue. And, and, but it can no longer be worked through. And they predict those in the minority, like Roberts, Alito, Scalia, and Thomas, they predict that this issue will be much like abortion, uh, which was also ruled on preemptively, some would say, where it causes a divide in our country and makes it much harder for people to um, absorb or recognize or come to any kind of agreement about same-sex marriage. Finally, we've got to courageously face the future, don't we? Can I get an amen to that? <laughs> we need to courageously face the future. Um, the Supreme Court justices' dissents recognize the threat same-sex marriage law is to religious liberty. Let me, I'll just pick one. Uh, let me pick Alito. Page six. He says, 
Today's decision usurps the constitutional right of the people to decide whether to keep or alter the traditional understanding of marriage. The decision will also have other important consequences. It will be used to vilify Americans who are unwilling to assent to the new orthodoxy. In the course of its opinion, the majority compares traditional marriage laws to laws that denied equal treatment for African Americans and women. The implications of this analogy will be exploited by those who are determined to stamp out every vestige of dissent. Well, we need some hope. And I want to point to Acts 4, chapter 4, where um, Peter and John had raised uh, by a miracle of God this man who was over 40 years old. He was lame from birth. And he was at the temple gate. They said to him, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And, you know, to their surprise, the Pharisees and the the council of Pharisees didn't roll out the red carpet for them. Instead, they took him to jail. And uh, then when they were able to speak to the council, they were told to shut up, weren't they? And this was their response. Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than t- uh, uh, to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. And later in verse 29, and now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant thy bondservants that we may speak thy word with boldness. And uh, I I believe we have a need for boldness. We have a need for courage. We have a need to resolve to not be silent. Whatever our view is, even if you are pro-same-sex marriage, I would encourage you to not be silent. But I trust that most of us here are pro-traditional biblical marriage. It's important that we not agree or uh, surrender to our culture to be silent. Um, And I want to let you know that we're not alone, or as alone as we think we are. David French again wrote this. He said, Not a single major Orthodox Christian denomination is reconsidering its stance on sexual revolution issues. While the media reports on the progress of gay rights movements in mainline denominations, for example, the Presbyterian Church USA recently changed its definition of marriage to include same-sex unions, the movement is irrelevant to the much larger evangelical and Orthodox Catholic communities. None of the large Orthodox Protestant denominations are changing their stance on human sexuality. Neither is the Catholic Church, neither are the various branches of orthodoxy. And these institutions collectively dwarf the liberal mainline churches when it comes to church-going adherence. Given this reality, the rapid advances of the gay rights movement and its allied sexual revolutionaries will soon stagnate as they face the challenge of persuading tens of millions of Bible-believing Americans that there is nothing wrong with same-sex marriage. So then he goes on to say, it's going to be just like the abortion issue, where it's a long battle over a long period of time. 
You know, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of what? Be of courage, be of good cheer, because I have overcome the world. Now, we're very close to done, probably one minute. Here are some application points that I think uh, this message uh, bodes. First of all, I think we need to agree with Jesus about what marriage is. I think, secondly, we need to resolve to live our life boldly, live our faith boldly, uh, but humbly. Amen? We need to own the gospel as delivered, not as how we might want it to be. You know, I have a pretty libertarian streak in me. I want people to be free to live the way they want to live. But there's times where that collides and must be overwhelmed by biblical ethics, and this is one case where that's true. We need to teach our young people not to bracket their sexual values from their walk with God or their obedience to God. We need to approve of only one sexualized relationship, a man and a woman in committed marriage, and that'll be difficult to work out when you're being asked to do something that you're not sure violates your conscience or the gospel. We won't judge each other in that area because it's a very difficult area to walk. Um, argue the reality and superiority of traditional marriage. First Peter 3.15 tells us to defend, be able to defend the hope that's in us. And Hebrews 13.4 says, uh, hold marriage in honor among all. That's our duty, I believe. And then finally, be salt and light. Let's have the best, most vibrant, enduring marriages, those of us who are married, that we absolutely can. Thank you for listening to me so patiently. I pray that you will think about these things. I believe I've preached the word of God faithfully, and may God bless the preaching of his word.